0: Well, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our Adult Discipleship Director. Glad to be with you today, and uh, welcome to those of you joining us online, wherever you are. Glad you are joining us. If this is your first time here, we think that's a really big deal, so we're, we're very grateful that you have uh, came to worship with us today, and we know that God will speak to you and has something for you. Uh, a few weeks ago, I did a sermon uh, in the Image Bearer series, and I was talking about Uh, gender and temperament, and I said something like, you know, I'm a man, but I have a more feminine temperament, and uh, gave some illustration of that, and and some of you have graciously, you know, made some comments to me and poked a little fun at my expense, and all in good taste, all all in good taste, fun stuff, Uh, but the great nation of Texas, where I'm from, did call, and uh, they said to me, hey, we love you. We want you to maintain your citizenship, so be sure and tell the uh, full story. Be sure and tell you know, your more masculine side. And I said, all right, fine. So I called my mom up, and we dug out some photos uh, from the photo album in the closet. And I just wanna show you a few of these. Uh, this was me with my BB gun in the backyard. Yeah, in Texas you get a BB gun at like 10. Uh, and this is me with my friends hanging out. We loved animals on the weekend. That was a hard-fought eight seconds. Hard-fought eight seconds. And then last week, me and my son went to our first NASCAR race. I forgot to tell you I was the driver. So, hey, just a little fun. <laughs> some of you are not like, that's not that fun. Um, and some of you say, well, why, why, do you, why, do you, why do you do that towards the beginning? Well, there's, there's two reasons, really. One is that humor breaks down walls. And two is that's who I am. That's who I am and who I like to be to playfully engage people. In fact, uh, I came up with my life mission statement when I was 40 years old. It took me that long to figure out what am I supposed to do with my life? And the first three words are to playfully inspire, to playfully inspire. So that's a part of who I am. That's a part of who God has made me to be. And today we're gonna be talking about image bearers being restored to their proper image. And I wanna just say that as we talk about Jesus restoring us to our proper image, to fully functioning humanity, Jesus and grace are for humanity, not against it. Grace doesn't cut across the grain of nature, it enhances it. So Jesus doesn't push down our personalities and our uniqueness, he enlightens it, and he draws it out. And he says, there's no other you that can be fully you, so I want you to be you more out loud, and that actually gives me honor and glory. Now, we all bear some uh, fruit that does resemble Jesus. We bear the fruit of the Spirit and love and joy and peace, patience, and kindness, and there's things that look very similar, but it's all in our own unique way that he's designed us. Jesus aims to restore fallen humanity. That's what redemption is about. Um, I have some more pictures. Actually, if you, if you like pictures and sermons, this is your sermon. So, like if you go buy a book and you're like, oh, great, there's pictures in it, this one is for you. Um, in the 15th century, there was a fresco in Spain. A fresco is a certain type of art, it's painting, and it's usually used with plaster, but it's put on a wall. It's put on a wall or put on a ceiling. Uh, if I said uh, Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, you would know, oh, well, that's a fresco. That's what a fresco is. Well, in the 15th century, there was one painted of Jesus, a famous painting of Jesus. And it was when Pilate said to the crowd, he pulled Jesus out, and he said, behold the man. And so this is the painting, behold the man. But what happened over the years was the painting started to fade, and the painting started to chip, it was the 15th century, and someone in 2012, this, this parishioner, uh, decided this, is, this can't be this way, and so no skill, no talent, no ability to paint whatsoever, the parishioner said, well, I would like to help restore this original famous painting, and got the, the uh, permission of the priest at the church, and so she did, she went about and she painted this, and this is what it turned out. On the left, you see the original, and then you see the middle, and then you see her attempt at restoring the image. Now there's some laughter and there's some kind of like, oh, I feel bad for her, right? And you do, you feel kind of bad because you see that this painting, actually it made worldwide news, this painting was now ruined. It was now ruined because, although probably really good intentions, really good intentions and someone who really cared about it, but didn't quite have the skill and didn't quite have the expertise and didn't have the know-how, tried to put that image back together. And in this series, I think we've done a really good job of talking about the goodness of the image of God in humanity and that every person, man, woman, and child, bears the image of God and how that's a good thing and how we reflect God's image. But today we're gonna talk about restoring that image because the bad news is this, that image is marred and broken. Time, sin, death, it's, it's chipped away at the image so that you, you look at it and you think, yeah, that's not how it's supposed to be. I'm not how I'm supposed to be. The world's not the way it's supposed to be, and it needs to be repaired. It needs to be restored. That image in me needs to be fixed And so I just have three simple things to say about the image of God being restored and we're gonna look to Jesus as a perfect and true image but the first thing we have to understand if we want the image of God to be restored in us is this, we have to recognize we can't restore our own image. We have to recognize that we cannot restore our own image. We're gonna dance around in the book of Colossians today. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to chapter one. If not, you can follow along on the screen. It says, Colossians 1, 13 says this, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For he has rescued us, he being Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. This dominion in which Satan's sin and death reigned is what we experience in a world east of Eden. As St. Augustine said, we are born, we're, we're sinners by choice and by birth. By choice and by birth. Like Adam and Eve, sometimes we give them a hard time, but here's the reality we would have done the same thing. The inclination to be independent and autonomous and on our own and outside of this yoke of God is within all of us. And so we all lived in this domain of darkness in which sin and death reigned and Jesus had to come on this great rescue mission. It's like we were drowning in the ocean and we needed someone to come by and throw us a life raft, throw us a lifesaver, somebody's gotta help us. The only challenge is I'm not sure we all recognize that we need that help. I'm not sure we all recognize that we need that restoration. You know, maybe we looked at the center image in that and, and we, we look at ourselves and the world around us, and we think, oh, it, I guess it's fine. Like you can kind of see the goodness in it. You can kind of see what it was in the 15th century. You can look back and kind of use your imagination. But the reality is this we are glorious ruins. There is a goodness because we've been made in God's image, but there is a brokenness. I went to, to Rome on a mission trip when I was 20. And what just caught my attention immediately was um, the Colosseum and other ruins where you would just be walking and there would be you know, some new building or a McDonald's or a Starbucks or something and then there would just be literally a column laying down in the grass. That you don't know, how long has this been there? And humanity is glorious ruins. There is a beauty to it but there's a brokenness to it. Dan Allender says it like this, The work of restoration cannot begin until a problem is fully faced. The work of restoration cannot begin, can't even start, until a problem is fully faced. And I'm not convinced that we love to fully face problems. I'm not convinced that humanity just loves to, to, you know what, this is the thing, let's stare it head on, let's muster up our courage and be like, yeah, what, okay, what's the deal? Tell it to me, and so we can start the process of restoration. Rather, I think we're a little bit like this meme that catches on. It's like, there's fire all around us. We're like, I'm fine. I got my coffee, I'm fine. You're fine. We're all fine. When, in, when, when really, behind the scenes, our lives are falling apart. Maybe we feel it's a bit like a dumpster fire, and it's like I'm 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 fine, but I'm not so sure we are. Many of us love to watch DIY project shows. You know, I I can't even tell you how many uh, shows there are that are DIY or restoration projects, HGTV. Like I, you you don't even know how many there are today. There's a kobillion of them, if that's a number. Uh, But the the. The, the appealing thing about this, I don't know if you're a DIY person, like you actually try to do it yourself. I'm not a DIY person. I'm like a pay-IY person. Like pay the person that knows how to do it to come in and do it so that I don't screw it up worse and then I have to call two people to come in and fix it. Right? That, that's just not, that's not my gifting. Maybe that's you and that's fantastic. Here's, here's the challenge. Some of us love to fix things. We love to do it ourselves. We're fixers. We're fixers. We're like, I got this. I don't know how to do it, I'll watch a YouTube video, that's fine, somebody, somebody out there is on the interweb telling me how to do this and I'm gonna study it and I'll figure it out and I'll, I'll do it. Or some of us are fiercely independent, right? We're like, I'm, I'm not gonna pay somebody when I can take care of that myself. You ever done anything like that? No, absolutely not. But I'm not gonna pay somebody else to do it. Here's, here's the challenge with that mentality when it comes to spirituality, it's this, restoration, is not a DIY project, it's not a DIY project. As much as we wish it could be, it's not a pull myself up by my bootstraps, try a little bit harder, be a little bit better. It ends up looking like the fresco that we saw earlier. We are all engaged in some form of self-salvation project. If we're not casting ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, we're all engaged in some form of self salvation project where we think, no, I can do it myself. Here's one that's going around today, and we're in church, so this is gonna connect with us. I'll just be good. I'll just be good. I'll be nice. I'll be kind. I'll be respectful. I'll let other people, you know, when they cut me off, I'll wave to them. You know, allow me to let you in. I'll be nice to the people who are disrespectful in the store. You know what, I'll just be really good. The only challenge with that is when we're focused so hard on being good, we tend to see where we aren't, we tend not to see where we aren't being good. We turn a blind eye to that. The other question is, how good is good enough? How good is good enough? Wouldn't perfection be the bar? And none of us can reach that. Another self-salvation project that we engage in is I'll Be Right. I'll be good or I'll be right. I'll be on the right side of history. I'll be on the right side of the political spectrum. I'll have right doctrine. Like, I've got it right. And some people really trust on this and lean hard on this. Like, oh, I've got the right idea about God and the world. And the challenge with that is doctrine's a good thing, but it's not enough to save us. The book of James says that the demons believe that there is one God and they shudder. So even demons have good doctrine, but it's not enough. It's not enough because it's not a living and active relationship, it's not a casting oneself. It's that doctrine hasn't been put to work. Another self-salvation project today, and you see this out in the world, is I'll just be authentic. I'll just be authentic. I'll I'll find my true self and I'll let my true self come out. Now, here's the challenge with this. There's a lot of good ideas from these conversations and there's a lot of good language that I suggest the church pick up on and infuse with redemptive meaning, but I'll just be my true self. I'll let go of all the fake self about me and I'll just be me and I'll just be really authentic. I'll just be honest all the time. The challenge with that is this, that even I know deep down that I'm not authentic all the time, that we all have a level of hypocrisy that we all have a level of, oh, I'll be like this in this situation, but I'll be like this in this situation. So what do we do then? We cannot save ourselves. We need someone stronger to come in and rescue us because this is the reality. Sin makes us subhuman. Sin makes us subhuman. The image of God in us is not destroyed, but it is lost and repressed, so to speak. Last week, uh, Grace Marie used the wonderful movie illustration, Hook, and uh, we heard that a lot of people went home and they watched that as a family. I'm gonna use a different movie illustration. I'm not suggesting you go watch it as a family. In 2007, there was a great movie based on an earlier novel called I Am Legend, and Will Smith played the protagonist in this story, and he is Dr. Robert Neville, and the basic storyline is this, and if you think about it, it's a great metaphor for what's going on with sin, the storyline is that a virus has infected the world. It's a post-apocalyptic you know, story. The virus, a virus has infected the world and many people have died from this virus, but those who have not died, they get turned into subhuman creatures, kind of these vampiric uh, albino creatures and they're called dark seekers and they can't come out in the light they only, uh, you know, they, they shut themselves in during the day and they only come out at night to hunt others who have not been uh, infected. They turn on humanity. And in this story, the Dr. Robert Neville actually is immune to this virus, so he has the antidote in his own blood. And towards the end of the story, it goes something like this. He finds that this antidote that he's been trying to get to cure humanity has actually been working. But the, sub, the, the dark seekers find him and they want to destroy him because they don't know any better. And so he sends a woman and her daughter off with this cure and he lays down his life and he sacrifices his life because the dark seekers don't even know what they're doing but they kill him. And yet the cure goes off and assuming is, is used to bring healing humanity, That's a great analogy of what sin does to us. It makes us subhuman. We don't even know. When the doctor comes in with the cure, we don't even understand how bad it is. And sometimes we fight against the physician. We fight against the physician, try to keep him away. We think he's an enemy, but he's not. He just knows that we need really strong medicine to restore us. So we have to recognize that we can't restore our own image. Secondly, we must look to the original image. We have to look to the original image. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. I don't know if you've done this, but in this series called Image Bearers, if you just take some time this week to google image of God Bible verses. It's it's actually so rich. There's so many texts about the image of God, and one of them that is supreme over the others I think is Colossians 1:15 and it says this, "The Son, he is the image of the invisible God." God is invisible but he has made himself visible through Jesus. How can we know God? God has made himself known in the person, the life, and the teachings of Jesus. Now this, this passage also goes on to say that, that Jesus basically existed before the foundation of the world. He is the pre-incarnate, he's the Christ. So this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed before the creation of the world. In fact, in and through the second person of the Trinity, all things were made. Why were all things made? For him. How were all things made? Through him. So he could have the supremacy. And Paul here says, do you wanna know what humanity was supposed to look like? Do you wanna know how humanity was supposed to interact with each other, how they were supposed to respond when people offended them or betrayed them, how they were supposed to treat people in power or people who were powerless. Do you wanna know what the best picture of humanity is? Look to Jesus, because he's the image of the invisible God. And no doubt Paul would have had Genesis 1 in his mind that Adam and Eve had forfeited the privilege to, to, to bear out God's image and to steward his kingdom and Jesus has come as the second Adam or the true humanity or the new humanity. He's the clearest example of God. So saying that, I have to say this, that if we wanna know who God is, we've gotta look to Jesus. We have to study the gospels If you don't know where to start in the Gospels, you never read the Bible before, I would start with Mark or start with John. Go there, read them, meditate on them, pray through them, listen to sermons on the Gospels. And then as you do that, start to branch out because the reality is this, Jesus gets to define truth. Jesus gets to define love. Jesus gets to define compassion. If we wanna know what it's like to be properly, fully functioning humans, we have to model our lives after Jesus. Jesus also gets to define what we think about the rest of the Bible. some people say this, well, I, I love Jesus, I love the Gospels, I'm not so sure about the rest of the Bible. The only challenge with that is that Jesus upheld the rest of the Bible as scripture. There was no New Testament when Jesus came, so when he's talking about scriptures, he's talking about Old Testament. He even affirms Genesis, and he affirms Deuteronomy, and he affirms Jonah in the belly of the well. So how does Jesus think about the Bible? That's something for us to model. We have to look at the original image to be conformed into the image of God. Here's why. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. This is why idolatry never works. It's because it's, it's, it's all of us locked in a dark room trying to figure out which way is up and which way is down and how to get out of there and we're all looking to each other for the answers and we're all looking to each other for the right way but idolatry never works because we'll never surpass something that comes from a created being. And when we, we're we're a lot like the moon. We're made to reflect. And sometimes we reflect lesser light and sometimes we reflect greater light. We were made to position our lives in such a way that the light of Christ, the sun, shines on us and we reflect his light. We're reflectors. And we become what we behold. I think that maybe, perhaps, I've been thinking about this in my own personal life. Maybe loving God looks more like we just consistently repent of our idols. Maybe loving God looks a lot like we consistently repent of our idols. Have you ever ever seen a child in a high chair that you fed, and maybe you've spoon-fed this child, and maybe you've spoon-fed this child like carrots and peas? You know, I don't know how the child tolerates the baby food, but they do somehow. And maybe you spoon-fed the child, and, and at the end of the feeding, you know, the bib is a wreck. You're gonna have to wash it. And the child's face is just an absolute mess. But what do you do? You go and you get a rag and you put some water on it and you're gonna come and clean the child's face off. Good luck. Good luck. Because as soon as you start to get near that child's face, some of you still hate your face being touched. Maybe it's from this early on in childhood trauma. You can talk to somebody afterwards. But you, you got this rag coming toward your face and this child just does what? just thrashes, and fights, and squirms, and maybe cries, and takes your hands and pushes them away. You didn't know that little baby was that strong, but they are. That's a lot like Jesus restoring our image. I think we're so easily distracted we look to all these different things and then sometimes we resist his work and we're thrashing about and he's coming to clean us up. He's coming to heal us and restore us and we are just looking everywhere but him. The more we look to Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. The more we look to Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. Listen to Colossians 1:17 through 20. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is a very broadly scoped passage says that Jesus is before all things. All things hold together in him. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, his resurrection, so that he might have the supremacy. Another translation says this. So that he might be preeminent. We were never to become too enamored, even as we're seeing the goodness of God in other people. And the goodness of God and what humans can create, and we do see the goodness of God there, but that was never meant to have our primary gaze. The gaze of our soul was to be on the preeminent Christ, to fix our lives, to orient our allegiances and our loyalties to Jesus. So Paul says he, he did all this because he's supreme so that he could be supreme in our lives. and in and through him to reconcile to himself all things. He's the prototype. He's the prototype of humanity. We have uh, several video game systems at our house that sometimes me and my son or me and the the kids or all of us like to play. I like to play Mario Kart, I believe I've told you that before. One of the systems that we have is the Nintendo Wii. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that Nintendo had to do a lot of prototyping to come up with this Nintendo Wii because they were like, hey, here's this controller, but we want it to be wireless, but we want it to be able to send these signals to the TV so that everyone could, like, what they did with their controller would actually send signals to the TV and on the screen, you would see it that way. So they came up with, like, four or five different prototypes of a controller, and they were just absolute fails, Like one of them actually had a baton extending out of the front of the controller and you'd have to point it at the screen so that you you could get the screen to do what you would say. They came out with some other ones. Finally, they came with this, this one that doesn't even look like a controller. I'm not even lying. It looks like a round block of cheese with a star button in the middle and three small buttons on the side. That's it. I'm not sure how you play any other video games with that, but that's, that's one of the prototypes they came up with until finally they came up with the one that you, that you have now with the Wii that points at it and you can turn it sideways. But they had to do a lot of prototyping. and Prototyping is, is something that if you're trying to get a product out, it's the first or the primacy. It's, it's supposed to be the main one, which all other ones kind of follow suit. And unlike Nintendo and unlike even a lot of car prototypes, God didn't get it wrong with Jesus. There was no trial and error. He's the prototype of what it looks like to be fully human. And therefore, he's the supreme example. In this passage, it says that Jesus came to save, essentially, all a creation that was fallen. N.T. Wright puts it like this. Redemption is not simply making creation a little bit better, as the optimistic evolutionist would try to suggest, nor is it rescuing spirits and souls from an evil material world, as the Gnostic would want to say. It is the remaking of creation, having dealt with the evil that is defacing and distorting it, and it is accomplished by the same God now known in Jesus through whom it was made in the first place. It's not a let's get you out of this place, it's so bad, and I'll destroy it, and I'll whisk you off to some ethereal spiritual existence. No. And it's not a, you know what, it just needs to be a little bit better. We're almost there, and through education and human effort, we can get there. No. It's really bad. It needs to be ripped down to the studs. And it needs to be remade. And in Christ, God is remaking creation. So we look to his image. We need to admit that we can't remake our own image and we look to the image of the original. And then lastly, we have to cooperate with the conforming process. Being remade into his image is a process and in order to get there, we are powerful participants in this process and we have to cooperate. And this one's gonna hit home for many of us this morning. Romans 8.29 says this, for those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So here's the prototype. This is what he looks like. And those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, I'm not gonna get into foreknowledge and predestination and all the closet Calvinists are secretly upset and they'll probably send me some emails like, why didn't you unpack that? Because the main point of this is that it is our purpose and our destiny Should we cooperate with it to be conformed into the image of Jesus? But here's the reality. This is a painful process. It hurts. It hurts because the old image has to be pulled apart, has to be broken down, has to be shattered, so to speak. Our youngest daughter, Isabella, she has a sucker-making mold, a silicone sucker-making mold, and she has, her and my wife have made some suckers at the house, and they are still working on the recipe. It's not their fault. Uh, They're still working on the recipe. It's a work in progress, just like us, but the suckers come out perfect. They come out so beautiful because of this mold, and it's like, man, that's picture perfect, and the reality is this, is that we live in a world east of Eden, and Because of that, we're afraid. And because of that, we put on a mold. And so we put up our survival defenses and we lock ourselves into this mold. And maybe it looks good, but it's a really hard mold. And one of the things that Jesus has to do is chip away at that mold and break it. And that's a hurtful process because we've spent a lot of our childhood, a lot of our adolescent years and our 20s and our 30s putting this thing together, thinking it's the real us, thinking it's the best version of us, and Jesus is going to come at us, and he's going to try to pull that thing apart, and we're gonna resist it. We're gonna fight it. It's like, it's like, taking, it's like every day you're putting old clothes away, you're putting new clothes on. Listen to Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Once again, image of God, image of creator. We are being renewed in knowing him, but because of this he says, you know, don't put on the same clothes every day. Take those old clothes Take those old, that old you, that old mentality, that old attitude, that eye-for-eye eye attitude. Oh yeah, well you hurt me, well I'm gonna get you back. And that one that just steps on the shoulders of others to get to the top and doesn't care about it. Take that old attitude, throw it away. Put on clean clothes, put on humility, put on kindness, put on compassion, put on love, put on gentleness, put on patience. Every day, it's an everyday thing. and it's a painful process, it's a hard-fought process. When I was uh, 30 years old, I tore my labrum uh, in my right shoulder in the rotator cuff. I had torn it, I was working out hard, obviously, and uh, I knew you were still awake. I got you. <clears throat> and uh, I had torn it, and I went to the surgeon, because I, 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 I wanted to obviously use it. I still want to work out, but I was also playing in some other you know, sports leagues, and I love to do that on the side. So I went to the surgeon, and he said this. He's like, Chad, you're, you're too young for me to do surgery here. I don't want to put you through surgery. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stop working out for like eight to nine, ten months, and then I'm gonna ask you to go through a rehabilitation process. And I was like, okay. And he's like, that rehabilitation process, is you're gonna have to be really disciplined in it. I said, okay, well, what do I gotta do? He's like, well, you can still do physical exercise, but don't do anything upper body. And then I want you to get get an exercise band. I want you to tie it around a post in the house, outside of the house, and I just want you to do this. Just do these exercises. Do 20, do 30, do in the morning, do at night. If you don't have anything, lay on your side, grab a can of soup, and just do this. And I'm thinking to myself, like, that's it? Like, that's not very heavy. That's not very hard to do. If you've never done this, I challenge you this week, lay on your side with a can of soup and just do 30 of those things. Your shoulder will be on fire. And so I go through this process. I stop lifting upper body start doing my rehab. Sure enough, my shoulder gets stronger. My shoulder gets stronger. And then I'm able to, through that rehabilitation process, continue to work out, continue to play sports. And here's one of the things he said to me. He said, I don't wanna do a shortcut on you, but if you do the rehabilitation process, that scar tissue that's gonna form is actually gonna be stronger. That's what spiritual formation is like. It's a rehabilitation process. There are no shortcuts. It's daily discipline. It's effort. It's constant surrender. It's taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. We all have equal opportunity for spiritual growth. Hear me, because I'm talking right now. We are not all given equal circumstances in life, but we are all given equal opportunity to grow up. Disappointment, pain, suffering, Sorrow, stress, problems and persecutions, trials and temptations, they face us all. And the primary difference between someone who grows into spiritual maturity or someone who remains spiritually immature is this, what will you do with the pain? What will you do with the suffering? Because I tell you this, These things are not merely a pathway to God. They are God himself. Interrupting us. Interrupting our slumber and attempting to wake us up and grow us up. You see, we say, I would love to be remade into this beautiful image that God has. I would love to, to see that. then we gotta put down our paintbrushes because we're not skilled enough to do it. We're not the author, we're not the artist. We're the templates, we're the story. We have to put down our paintbrushes and say, "Eh, I can't do this myself. And if I keep trying, I'm just gonna keep making a mess. So I, I give it to you, I surrender. And then we have to fix our eyes on Jesus and say, yeah, I'm gonna get easily distracted. Sometimes I'm gonna fight, but that's okay because the grace is gonna pick me back up again and I'm gonna fix my eyes on you again and every time I get distracted, I'm gonna fix my eyes on you again. I'm not gonna be beat up by shame or by guilt because this is all of our plight. We're gonna keep fixing our eyes on Jesus and then we're gonna do the hard work of rehabilitation. That daily discipline of saying no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to new humanity. I will cooperate with the process. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much for your scriptures. God, thank you that you are the true image. That we look so many other different places for our identity, for our definition. we like, how am I supposed to live and who am I supposed to be? But you've already given us a template You've already shown us that not only do we have a benevolent king who's created us in his image and wanted us to steward that image, but we have a king who has come on our behalf in our image. That you know what it's like to be one of us. You understand us. You get it. And Father, we need your help. We need your help. We need you to empower us in these little daily tasks so that we might look to you more and that we might be remade in who you intended us to be. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that even more than us, sometimes you're committed to this process. You're relentlessly committed to this process and you'll never give up on us. Whether we've thought about you, not thought about you for two months or 20 years, you're still willing and wanting to work with us. And we thank you for that. And we give you praise for that. In Christ's name, amen.